We are Plum Creek, and we're a place where you matter. Our mission here is centered around change lives, changing lives. We believe this happens through three relationships, intimacy with God, intentionality with family, and influence with others. We hope what you hear today will impact and challenge you to love God and the people around you in a whole new way. We'd encourage you to connect with us online at PlumCreekOnline.com or on social media to see how Plum Creek is impacting our community and what opportunities we have for you and your family to get connected. If you'd like to support the ministry we're doing here in Castle Rock, the two easiest ways are through the Give tab on our website or via your mobile device by texting your dollar amount to the number on the screen. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you'll enjoy this message. founder and CEO of International Justice Mission. It's a Christian organization that its sole purpose and its aim and its desire is to wipe out slavery and sex trade all throughout the world. Huge endeavor. Now, Gary is a graduate of Harvard. He uh, served at the, with the U.S. Department of Justice and then was given to the U.N. on loan to go and to investigate the genocide in Rwanda. And while there, Gary kind of his heart was just wrecked for the plight of people, for people that, that couldn't speak for themselves, that couldn't stand up for themselves. And that's what birthed in him. God birthed in him this idea for international justice mission. But there was an event that ha occurred earlier in Gary's life that prepared him for this moment, to be able to kind of step away from all of that and to engage in this horrible, horrible issue that plagues our world. And I wanna tell you a little bit about this story. It was when Gary was 10 years old. And his dad and his brothers, they had planned this camping, hiking trip. And his dad truly wanted him to climb the formations up to the summit of Mount Rainier and just have this incredible experience that they would remember for the rest of their lives. But Gary was afraid of this. I mean, as a 10-year-old boy, he gets closer and closer to the moment where they're going to have to leave their, their camping site and head to the mountain. And as they get there, they enter into the visitor center. And Gary looks around and he goes, oh, wow, there's exhibits and videos and stuffed animals in this place. And in his 10-year-old brain, this plan begins to hatch. I think I can get out of this, right? I think I don't have to go up to the summit if I don't want to. And so he begins to set in on his, on his father, is just relentlessly pleading, dad, please don't make me go up there. I don't wanna go up there. I can't do that. I'm gonna go up there and I'm gonna die and you're gonna be in trouble when you come back home because mom is not gonna be pleased if you let me die up on top of that mountain. And so he's pleading, just let me stay here in the visitor center. I'll just stay down here. You guys go up there. Now, and, and, and finally, you know, Gary's dad just relents. He's like, okay, fine. If you don't want to come up here, I don't want to put up with you. Come on, all of us, all, you know. And before you judge his dad too much, I know like in your mind, you're going, wait a second, he's going to leave him at the visitor center and go up to the summit. What in the world's going on here? It's 1974. It's the land before seat belts and car seats and all of that. I mean, on tri family trips, you're climbing in the very back of the car and laying down on top of the, of the window of the dash, right? 
I mean, that's just how it went on. So Gary's dad says, okay, you can stay home. Just stay right here at the visitor center. And Gary's just like, he felt great about his victory. It was so awesome. The visitor center air was so warm and so comfortable. There was free hot chocolate as much as he could drink. There were interesting things to watch and to read. And so he just devoured the information. He explored every single corner of this visitor center. And it was just amazing. But as the afternoon wore on, something kind of changed. All of a sudden, this massive visitor center began to feel really, really small. I mean, the, the warm air that felt so warm and comfortable now was stuffy and it was suffocating. And the hot chocolate that he had 10 cups of began to be just choking him and disgusting to him. He couldn't take another sip of it. And then the stuffed animals that were so interesting at the beginning just kind of seemed, well, dead, you know. And the videos, those inspiring video loops that he had been watching, the sixth and seventh time just began to be mm, not so much anymore. And so Gary now wished that he could be one of the ones that was actually climbing this great mountain instead of just reading about the, the folks that climbed this great mountain. And he was bored and he was sleepy and he felt small. I really missed his dad. And so he kept an eye on the trail. And finally, hours and after, hours and hours had passed, he finally sees his dad and his brothers coming off the trail. Their faces were windblown and windburned. It was wet with the snow. They were famished. They were dehydrated. They were nursing scrapes from the rocks and the ice. But on this long journey home, Gary realized that they had far more than just that, than scrapes and bruises. They had an incredible story of this incredible experience with their father. And Gary in that moment realized, you know what? I was on this trip, I was, I was on this journey, but I had missed the adventure. And he kind of, I think in that, in that moment, it formed in him, in his character, a thing of going, I am not going to miss out on that again. And so when he went to Rwanda and he saw the suffering that was going on and he felt God's moving, he decided, you know what, I'm on this journey with God, I'm not going to miss the adventure. And so he leaves all of that and starts IJM and thousands upon thousands of people their lives have been affected by that. You know, in this series, we're exploring the miracles of Jesus and John. And we've looked at, at, and we've seen water turn into wine. We've seen Jesus heal the official son. Here's the deal. I think these, these miracles, it's the adventure. It's the adventure that marks a life that says, I am willing to follow Christ with everything. I'm willing to believe in him to come through in my toughest circumstances. And if he chooses to do it a certain way, I'm willing to trust him. I'm willing to give up my comfort. I'm willing to step out of the things that are known. And I'm willing to embrace the risk and step into the, this adventure that God has been calling me to. I think sadly, there's so many of us that we just settle for the journey of Christ. Instead of allowing our life to become an adventure with him. We cross that line of faith. We have a relationship with him, but we miss out on this spectacular miracles and adventure that he calls us to because we're too afraid to move. We can be totally safe, but we can be totally stuck at the same time. That's what Gary was. 
Gary was totally safe, but he was totally stuck, and he missed out on this adventure. And so as we dive into this miracle today, I want to challenge you with the main thought for this weekend, and it's this. Don't settle for the journey. Step into the adventure. Don't settle for the journey, but step into the adventure. We're going to look at the fifth miracle that we find in John. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, or if you want to turn your phone on and check out your app, you're going to be in John chapter 6. Starting in, six, in verse 16, going through 21. Now, this fifth miracle that we see, it's recorded in two other gospels as well. Matthew and Mark record this miracle. Uh, Luke, I don't know, maybe it wasn't precise enough for him. And so he just decided, you know what, we're going to leave this one out. But in three of the four gospels, we see this miracle. And in, in verse 16, we pick it up and it says, That evening, Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake toward Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them and the sea grew very rough. They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on water toward the boat and they were terrified. You see the miracle, I want to set this kind of up. This miracle directly follows the fourth miracle we find in John. And it's right after they had been on this hillside and they had fed over 20,000 people with a few loaves of bread and some fish. Now, I know you're going, wait a second, that's feeding the 5,000. That just counts the men. When you add women and children on that hillside, it gets to about 20,000 plus. And you might be wondering, you know, for some of you, you might have that OCD kind of tick inside and going, you know what, uh, Kyle, I, I don't know, really know if you can do the fifth miracle before you do the fourth miracle. Why don't we just go ahead and do the fourth miracle first because everything needs to follow sequential order of law. And uh, this is just throwing me off. Let's just go ahead and do that. But there's a very profound reason why we skip ahead to the fifth before the fourth. And the reason is this. Doug really, really wanted to preach the fourth miracle. <laughs> so... You know the rest of the story. <clears throat> so here are the disciples, right? They have served all day long. 20,000 people. If, can you imagine serving 20,000 people, carrying baskets of fish and of bread, making sure everybody's needs are met? They had been pouring themselves out in ministry. And then Jesus, after they've fed everybody, Jesus says, you know, hey, go down to the, the, the lake shore. I'm going to go off to pray. As he often did after he had expended himself, he went off to pray so that he could receive more energy and more power from, from, from God, his father. And so the disciples are down there and they're waiting and they start rowing across the lake in the middle of the night. Now you might ask, you know, okay, why would they start rowing in the middle of the night after this exhausting day of ministry? Well, I, I kind of believe that it's because they didn't have a female disciple because if a female disciple was there, they would have been saying, you are idiots. You are not rowing across this lake in the middle of the night. We are waiting until morning. But that wasn't the case. And so they start heading out and crossing this same sea that they had crossed earlier. They had hiked up the, mountain, the hillside. They had fed this, the 20,000. And now they're at the end of their rope, at the end of themselves. But the funny thing is, is the more you look at miracles, a lot of times that's the place when they occur. When we get to the end of ourselves, when we get to the end of our rope, when we think, you know, there's no possible way that something is going to happen in this situation if it's got to be dependent on, on me because I've got nothing left. And so many times we see Jesus and we see God enter into those situations and then the miraculous happens. But we see in Matthew and Mark, 
they say that Jesus actually insisted that they leave and that they get in this boat and head across. And so they were obeying what Jesus had told them to do. And so that's why they started heading out in the middle of the night. And Mark's, Mark's account tells us about a miracle before the miracle. We look at this and we go, oh, Jesus walked on water. That's the miracle. But we missed the first one. A lot of times it's overlooked. Because in Mark, it says this. It says that Jesus sees that the disciples were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves. So there's three kind of things that are coming together that cause the very first miracle. First, it's three o'clock in the morning. It's pitch black. There's no light out. There's no possible way that anyone could see that far. And more, than, more, more so, they're out about three and a half miles offshore. They're in the middle of the lake. Now, if you are inclined to the scientific mind, then the curvature of the earth, it begins to drop off at 3.1 miles. So in there, the disciples are out in the middle of this lake, about three and a half miles out. They can't see the shore. The shore can't see them. The curvature of the earth, there's no possible way they can see it. And then the third factor here is that there are waves coming up onto this boat. It is raining. There is a storm that is going on. And these aren't your average, normal, everyday lake waves. It's not like somebody else was in a boat and they rode by and then the wake just kind of gently was moving the boat of the disciples. What's interesting about the Sea of Galilee is it has a lower elevation and it has warmer air temperature that circulates over it. And so all throughout the Jordan River Valley, there can be these massive storms. Even as, as recent as 1992, there was recorded 10-foot waves on the Sea of Galilee that did damage in the modern, modern city of Tiberias. And so these are massive waves. I mean, just think about it. You can take a little wave in the ocean and feel that power. These are big waves going down. So it is, it's amidst the waves and the rain and the darkness and about three and a half miles outside that Jesus from the shore sees his disciples in distress. And he decides, you know what? I'm gonna go to him. I don't care what it takes. I'm gonna go to him. And he begins to walk out to them. And what do the disciples do? They freak out, right? I mean, they see something walking out in the water amidst all, these, all the rain and all the waves and all the chaos that's going on. And they're looking at it and they had to have been thinking, you know, oh my goodness, what is gonna happen here? They actually think it's a ghost. They're probably saying to themselves, are really God? Are you serious? We just fed 20,000 people and we have just, we left everything, all our families, our jobs and everything to follow your son. And then he asks us to get in the boat and row out into the middle also that you could kill us by a ghost. What in the world's going on? And so they're overcome and paralyzed and gripped by fear. And then we see what happens next. In verse 20 and 21, it says, but he called out to them, don't be afraid, I am here. Then they were eager to let him in the boat, right? <laughs> yes, of course, please come in. This is crazy, we need you in here. And immediately they arrived at their destination. You know, it's interesting to me, uh, we see John, he records it, it's like, oh, we immediately got there. But it's interesting to me that in Matthew, Matthew records an event that Mark and John don't even record. They don't even say it's part of the story. They don't even mention it. To Mark and John, it's, hey, Jesus calls out to us, we let him in the boat, and then we arrive at our destination. But I want you to look at what Matthew says about this event. And he describes what happens after Jesus calls them out. So Jesus says, I'm here, it's me. And then in Matthew 28 and 29, it says, Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, 
Tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat, walked on the water toward Jesus. Now, I'm sure at that moment, too, all the other 11 disciples, when Peter goes, hey, Lord, if you will just call to me and tell me to come to walking to you on water, they're probably like, there's a groan that goes out. Peter, seriously, this is a Peter moment, right? Here he comes. You know, he's the confident, brash, sometimes cocky one, just kind of steps out and goes with his emotions. Here goes Peter walking on water. This is ridiculous. Maybe that's why Mark and John didn't even write it down, right? <laughs> they're just like, hey, I'm not giving you props on that. <laughs> I've had enough of you. But Matthew tells us, here's what is, is, is going on. And, and I don't know, in Peter, here's what I think we see. We see an example of a man who said, you know what? I'm not just satisfied with the journey. I want to be in this adventure with God. I want to be in an adventure with Jesus. Because I've just seen him feed 20,000 people and I've seen him now walk out on water amidst a storm. I know that he is more than capable of, of, of having me come out and join him. Peter kind of puts it together. Now, later on in that, in that passage, when you read on, Peter gets out there, he starts walking on water. But then what does he do? He starts looking around and he sees the waves and he begins to go, uh-oh, this is not good. And he begins to sink. Jesus rescues him. That's a whole nother sermon. We're not going to look at that. But for him to recognize, hey, this God is capable of anything, just call out to me. You see, he wasn't satisfied with the journey. He wanted to step into this adventure. And there were 11 other guys on, in this boat that probably have regrets. Just like Gary had regrets. Because they stayed in the safety of the boat, but missed the adventure of walking on water with Jesus. So how can we step into the adventure with God? How can our life begin to look a little bit more like Peter's? Well, I think we've got to lose sight of the shore first. We have to lose sight of the shore. Nobel laureate Andre Gide says this, one doesn't discover new lands without consenting to lose sight of the shore for a very long time. You won't discover new lands without consenting to lose sight of the shore for a very long time. If you're content, if we're content with just sitting in these chairs one to two times a, week, a month and just hearing about the word of God and maybe just reading just a little bit, if that's all we are content with, then we are settling for the journey. You can settle for the journey with God, but you might miss out on the adventure that God has for your life. Because here's the deal. I think that he has a plan for, to redeem and restore a broken world only through the relationships of us. He doesn't have a plan B. It's us. But if we decide because we're afraid of maybe where we stand or how we're going to be uh, perceived or received, then we are going to sit here and we're going to settle for the journey, but we might miss out on the adventure. We've got to say, you know what? I'm fine with losing sight of the shore. I'm okay if somebody's going to look at me in a, in, in a different way. But I want to be out there. I want to live my faith. There's this weird kind of dynamic of being able to say, talk about our faith, but then living it out. When we begin to live it out, that's where the adventure happens. That's where we begin to walk on water. And if we don't, it's going to be just like that visitor center. And your faith is going to become boring and stale. And it can seem irrelevant to your everyday life because you're satisfied staying in the warmth and the comfort of what you know. But when you take the step to live out your faith, that's where miracles happen. You see, miracles don't happen in the shallow end of the pool. 
They happen on the high dive when you jump off into water that you can't touch the bottom at. When you begin to live differently at work or at school. When you begin to love differently at home. When you begin to serve and to give into ways that don't make sense to the world around you. Maybe it's even just saying, you know what, I'm going to invite my neighbor to come to Easter. I don't really know how they're going to respond. They have yelled at me again and again about my dog or my trash can. But you know what, I feel that God is saying I need to go talk to him. And maybe it's just that one little invite that could change the trajectory of somebody's eternity. That's living in the adventure of God. We just had a group return from Honduras where they said, you know what, I'm okay with losing sight of the shore for a little while. They gave up a vacation week. They paid over $1,000 to be able to go and to be the hands and feet of Christ to, to some of these kids in Honduras so they could know that, hey, you are loved and there is a God that loves you. And they said, you know what? I'm gonna lose sight of the shore so that I can make much of my God. And here's what happens in the midst of that. You could ask every single one of them that came back and they would say, it's the best money I ever invested and it's the best work week that I ever took off. And they're gonna have stories when they go back to work and explaining, hey, you know what? This is why we didn't go to Disney World. This is why we spent the money here because I saw the change in some of my kids' lives. We got to serve together as a family and our lives look more like Christ than at any other time. They stepped into the adventure and stop settling just for the journey. We've got a group that are, that's going to the Philippines that are gonna travel in flight time, 27 hours in a plane with 38 of us. It's gonna be fun. Uh, but we're gonna go to a small one mile by one and a half mile island and give our lives away and tell other people about Jesus so that we can lose sight of the shore. And it's not just for what we can do for them because I'm sure that there's some other uh, organizations that can do what we can do. But the thing about it is, is we get to meet some needs of theirs, but man, the change that is gonna happen in the lives of the people that do that, because they have gone on that adventure, they're gonna be able to see Castle Rock differently. It is hard, it is, it's tough in an affluent context like ours to sometimes see outside of our own circumstance. And it's only when we kind of separate from that and we get lost in the adventure of what God is doing that we begin to see that world differently. And when we come home, we see our neighbors and our classmates and our coworkers, we see them with different eyes because we have been impacted and we have been changed. I mean, I wanna invite you on that adventure too. Maybe God's calling you uh, to, to, to go on one of these trips to Honduras, to the Philippines to lose sight of the shore. Maybe he's calling you just to kind of come alongside this team that has been working at praying and, and, and preparing themselves and, and they're looking for over $2,000. And so one of the ways that you could even come alongside them, there's a booth right outside in the lobby that are selling King Super Cards. You could get one of those, you could buy your groceries and gas and you could support some of these kids that have said, you know what, I'm gonna lose sight of the shore. I'm gonna step out into this adventure that God has for me. Maybe it's joining in that way. Who knows? But we have got to be willing to lose sight of the shore. And the next thing we've got to do is we've got to unlearn our fear. While there are several thousand classified fears and phobias, do you know that we are only born with two innate fears? Two, the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. Those two you don't have to learn at all. You come out ready to be afraid of that. 
But what it does mean is that all the other fears that keep us safe, that keep us in our proverbial boat, those can be unlearned. You see, and this is, the, this is the big thing. Miracles are found on the far side of fear. They're not found in the midst of it. Miracles are found on the far side of fear. You see, because God's will isn't for just an insurance plan. It's not just we come to know Christ so that we don't have to go to hell. It is, man, he gives us this daring plan. This plan to redeem and restore a broken world. And he says, I want you to live that adventure out. And we're not commissioned just to hold the fort until Jesus returns. He commands us to invade enemy territory, to reclaim it for righteousness. And Jesus didn't just suffer a brutal death on the cross just to keep us safe and sound. Even though we like safety and we would like to be safe and we would like to be sound, what if the prayer of our life becomes not just for safety, but that God, that you will use my life to make much of you no matter what. That's stepping into the adventure. You see, he died to make us dangerous to this culture. He died to make us water walkers. But we can't do that if we allow ourselves, just like those 11 disciples, to be paralyzed by fear. We've got to unlearn our fear and say, God, I'm in no matter what. And then the last thing we've got to do is we've got to step like we believe. Step like we believe. Many of us fail to achieve our dreams or experience the miraculous because we're more focused on not falling than we are on taking that first step. Instead of going for broke, we keep filling our piggy bank, we keep building our resume, but there comes a moment where we need to quit preparing for the life that we want and begin to start living it. To begin to step out with confidence into this adventure that God is calling us to. You know, when everybody started walking in this today, it wasn't like, I didn't see anybody like really kind of gingerly stepping in here, wondering if the concrete was going to hold them, right? I mean, it was like, we're going to walk in. We know the concrete's going to hold me. I don't have to test load it. I don't need to hear from all the engineers of how this concrete is going to hold me. We walked with confidence. But so many times, guys, we walk through life like we are at the foot of an ancient rickety rope bridge with rotten wood in the middle of it. And we are stepping into our faith, into what God calls us to. And we're like testing it out. Is this going to break? And we walk like that. I want us to walk like Indiana Jones. When he comes to the leap of faith and it's like he can't see anything and he's just like, okay, I'm going to step. And he steps out and there's solid ground. I want us to leap into this adventure that God has for us and step with confidence. Mark Nepo, author, says this. He says, if you follow in the footsteps of Jesus long enough, you will eventually walk on water. You'll go to impossible places and do unimaginable things. Water walking will become a way of life. All Peter needed to step out of that boat, to climb out of that boat into this crazy waves was Jesus saying, yes, come. He didn't say, wait a second, Jesus, would you really kind of explain how this is all gonna go down? Are you like gonna change the molecular structure of the water or of myself? Am I gonna be light as a feather? How is this gonna work? Is something gonna part so I can walk out it? Are you gonna like fly rocks down it? What? He didn't have to know all the details, right? All he said was, Jesus, you tell me to come walk on the water. And Jesus says, yes, come. And then Peter climbs out of the boat and takes that step. 
And I'm sure there was probably an inner dialogue in Peter as he climbs out of that boat going, you know what, I've got to believe. I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe in you. You're the God of miracles. I've seen you do that. I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe in you. It's like when you got to the first time and you're jumping off a high dive and you're like telling yourself, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. Or that first time you had to ask out that girl and you're going, oh my gosh, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And you dial a couple times and hang up. And then you finally, you have to talk yourself into it. Or when you go into the office to ask your boss for a raise or a job change and you've got to talk yourself up into it. I think that had to have been going on in Peter. It's something in him shouting, I believe in you. I believe in you. With each step, I believe in you. You're the God of miracles. I believe in you. Here's what I want us to do. If you would, just close your eyes right now. And I want you to think about this just for a moment. What boat do you find yourself in right now? Where's that place that you were just kind of huddled? That maybe you're fearful of leaving? That God might have been trying to move you for a while now to take that step like you believe in him. But you've been holding back, settling for the safety of the journey. But every step you take says, I'm afraid to truly step into what you've called me to do and who you've called me to be. Maybe for some of you, that means, you know what? I have never crossed that line of faith. And I'm kind of scared too right now. But I believe in what Christ did on the cross to forgive my sins. And I need to just step into relationship with him. That's the first step that I need to take. Because I've been beat up by waves in this life, in this world, by circumstances. And I need somebody to come get me in the midst of my storm. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And just pray right now. Pray. God, I thank you for what you've done through your son. And God, I need rescuing. I need you to come into my life. Forgive me of the places where I fall short. And help me to walk in this relationship with you. And at that moment, you enter into this beautiful adventure with the creator of the universe. For some of you, you've already crossed that line of faith. I want to ask you this. What adventure is God calling you to? What is he laying out where he wants you to step out like you believe? What is it going to take 
for us to follow in Peter's footsteps, for us to stop settling for the journey and step into this adventure, for us to become water walkers, where our steps, where our life screams, I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe in you. You're the God of miracles. I believe in you. I want you to just let those thoughts kind of wash over you in these next few moments. And our worship team is going to come up and they're going to sing a song. And I just want that to kind of settle into your soul. I believe in you.